Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us for our firm, September 2022, virtual First Fridays free call-in. The past eight months have literally flown by. I'm sure everyone agrees that we cannot wait for the Arizona heat to break uh, for the summer and get into these cool fall temperatures. Uh, My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for over 25 years. My firm currently represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. And I also currently serve on my HOA board and have for many years. Welcome to our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. First Fridays are a great time to get your questions on Arizona HOA and condo law answered at no charge. Here's how First Fridays is going to work today. If you haven't done so already, and I know we have a lot of questions already, please submit your First Friday question in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comments section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then I'll answer all questions between now and 10 a.m. But just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions that we get every first Friday, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. Thank you for understanding. Um, We're just adjusting the camera here a little bit, so bear with us. Um, Before we get started though, I do wanna mention kind of a serious topic that's impacting our association industry. Um, As some of you may have heard, there was a horrific shooting that took place in Atlanta, Georgia on August 22nd, 2022. It took the life of a community manager and it injured a building engineer and a condominium association. Law enforcement has said that they don't believe that these were random acts of, um, that these were not just a random act of violence. And unfortunately, the suspect was a resident of the condominium building where the shooting occurred and the suspect was a disgruntled resident in the condominium association. So I think one thing that we've really noticed over the past few years is in this post-pandemic era, hopefully post-pandemic, you know, we're starting to see more and more mental illness in associations um, with residents and disgruntled homeowners and residents are becoming more prevalent than ever. And it's important to handle these issues with extreme care. Um, so anytime, just a friendly reminder that anytime any, anyone in our industry, whether it's a board member or a manager or a homeowner, is concerned that somebody that they are, you know, managing in a situation could resort to physical harm or violence, the police should be contacted immediately. It's better to be safe than sorry. Don't hesitate to call 911 in the event of an emergency. And also understand what legal remedies you have as a board member, manager, or owner, or a resident, if somebody else's behavior crosses over into harassment. Um, Our firm has a really great cheat sheet on dealing with difficult personalities and people and harassment. And I really encourage you to take a look at this cheat sheet. 
because it has valuable information if you're dealing with difficult residents. And if you're wondering, hey, is this really crossing over to harassment to a level where, you know, you could go to court and um, get an injunction prohibiting harassment? Now, one thing I'm going to mention is it's difficult to get those injunctions prohibiting harassment. You have to be able to establish through evidence that the person has threatened harm to you or um, has actually harmed you in some way. Um, And so these aren't granted lightly. You're definitely going to have to have evidence um, showing that, you know, this person has threatened you or they've actually physically harmed you. So I encourage you to check out our cheat sheet on this topic. And our firm's going to be sharing that with you um, on Facebook Live and on Zoom. So you can get a direct link. Um, You also can find that cheat sheet and all of our cheat sheets on the Mulcahy Law Firm website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Thank you. Okay, let's talk quickly also about the 2022 legislative session. As you may know, it ended. We had one of our longest sessions ever in Arizona, and it ended in June. Those are going to be going into effect on September 24th. So the countdown begins in terms of becoming aware of the new legislation. We're going to be talking about the five new laws at our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Condo Academy. And that's going to be one of the main topics we're going to be discussing at our September Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy. And for those of you who are familiar with it, you probably already know this, but for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's always going to be the third Tuesday of every month. And we log on at 11 a.m. and we have about an hour and a half seminar. So on the third Tuesday of September, we will be talking about new legislation and also some other hot topics. Um, Also, we're going to be talking about the new legislation at the City of Chandler's HOA Roundtable on September 13th and the City of Scottsdale Neighborhood College class on September 15th. Um, So September is going to be shaping up to be a really busy virtual training month for our firm. I hope you'll consider tuning into any of the different four opportunities that we have to learn more about HOA and condo law. Um, And if you want to find out more information about that, you can go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and click on our seminars tab. And it'll tell you when the seminars are, what time, if they're virtual, most of them are still virtual, and how you can log in to listen. Okay, Um, I think my team also may be sharing some information with you on Zoom and Facebook Live about our upcoming events too. Okay, so let's dig right into the questions for today. Um, It looks like we have a lot of questions. Wow, we've got 43 as of right now. So that's amazing. Thanks everybody for caring so much about your associations that you're taking advantage of this free opportunity. Okay, so let's talk about our first question. Um, This is from a homeowner. Our board only allows topics that are on the agenda to be discussed and no time is allowed for other issues to be brought up by owners. As the board sets the agenda, they can avoid talking about topics. Is this legal? Well, one thing I can just mention is that, of course, the board does have the right to set the agenda for board meetings. That is one of their responsibilities. Most boards, however, have something called a homeowner forum at the beginning of every board meeting. And I would encourage all associations to consider doing that. And it it may be 10 minutes, it might be 15 minutes, where homeowners should have an opportunity to bring up a topic on anything that they're interested in um, or that they want clarification on. And so is it a requirement? No. But is it best practices? Yes. So I would encourage your board. I know you're a homeowner. Um, you you know, don't really have any um, ability to make that decision for your community. 
but most associations have it. And I am familiar with your association. I believe they do have that. So take advantage of that. Go to the board meetings and ask the questions that you want to have um, answered. Okay, next question um, is from a board president. Can a condo owner attach a surveillance owner camera to the outside of their cam to their condo if the field of vision of the camera only includes the owner's property, such as their driveway, and no other owner's property is visible in the picture? So we have a blog on this exact topic on security cameras, which we're going to be sharing with you shortly. And for those of you who may not be familiar with our blogs, we have blogs that are released several times a month on topics that are useful to associations. And we have one on security cameras already. So short answer to your question is, if a condo owner wants to put a surveillance camera on the outside of their condo, they should get approval from the board um, by submitting you know, a letter or an application if you have a formal approval process. There should be evidence provided that you know the field of vision on it doesn't include any other properties or the common area. Um, and I don't think it's something that the board should be opposed to if they follow those steps. Next question is also from a board member. Um, and this is question number three. Our HOA board decided a few years ago that all board members would join the architectural review committee instead of just the one required under Arizona law to be the chair of the committee. Our CCNRs contain verbiage that allows homeowners who have been denied architectural change approval by the architectural committee to appeal to the board for potential overruling of the decision by the architectural committee. Have homeowners in our association lost this unbiased appeal opportunity since all board members are now part of the ARC making the original decision? So really good question. Um, you know, in my experience, uh, some associations don't have enough people willing to serve on the architectural committee, and that causes the board to have to service the architectural committee. So that is a common problem in associations. What I would say is um, when the appeal is taken, the board needs to take a second careful look at what's being appealed. And if it's questionable in any way, um, the board really should be reaching out to their trusted advisors, their attorney, possibly their management company, their you know, insurance agent, if it's an insurance issue, to talk about whatever the appeal issue is. Probably the attorney and the management company are going to be the two people that you really want to lean on in this situation. Um, so do we lose some element of independence of the review when the board serves as the architectural committee for the appeal? Because it's the same people looking at the appeal because the same people are on the architectural committee and the board, probably. But it's an opportunity for the board, and, and you're on the board, like you said, to really dig deep and determine whether or not do an independent review, a second review, and reach out to your trusted advisors to help you if it's not a clear cut. So hope that answers your question. Question four, and this is from a homeowner. When it comes to ADA requirements, so the Americans with Disability Act, what is the definition of private and public as it pertains to accommodations? Um, so the ADA is something that applies to associations that have places of public accommodation in the association. So for example, if your association has a public restaurant, 
in your association and anyone can drive in and enjoy the wonderful food in the public restaurant, then, you know, your association, those areas at least, um, and other parts of your association are, may have to be in full compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. 99% of associations don't have public facilities on their property. The ADA really is never going to come into play, but the Fair Housing Act would come into play. And so I guess what's the definition of private and public? Um, so like I said, public would be that anyone from the general public can access and use this particular amenity. Now, having a green belt that's unfenced, unfenced, um, that's not a public accommodation. If the association owns the land, I mean, there may be no trespassing signs. Um, a clubhouse typically is not a public accommodation, um, even though, you know, you may be able to have a friends come and play cards at the clubhouse. And same thing, you might be able to have a, your pool allows you to bring guests. So public is really going to be defined as something, in my view, as um, anyone from the general public can come in and use the facility without having the owner present. We have a great cheat sheet on the Fair Housing Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act and how it may interface with associations. Um, and so I really would recommend that you take a look at that if you want to do a deep dive on this topic. It's called uh, Federal Laws for Community Associations, and my office may have already shared it with you here today, or you can find it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, next question, number five. This is from a board member. This question has to do with what we keep in a lot file, specifically a photo ID that verifies age. We are an age-restricted community, and homeowners must submit a form verifying their age along with government-issued IDs at the time of purchase. The form is kept in the lot file with the copies of the ID. My question is, do we have to keep the photocopies of the IDs along with the form? The board member verifying the information also signs the form to verify that he's seen the ID and the member is age compliant. Can we destroy the IDs once age verification is verified versus do we have to store it? So my opinion would be best practices would be that you keep the age ID form picture of it, um, because if you're ever audited or there's ever a challenge to be a 55 and over community, having that evidence is necessary and important and will be more adequate to prove that um, you have actually verified somebody's age and just having a, a board member sign a form, in my opinion, is you know not enough. Okay, next question, number six from a board member. What action does a board official take when a board member has violated a code of conduct in a gathering of owners? So let's say you have you know, a board member that's behaved badly, let's say, or has violated some aspect of a code of conduct. So we have a great cheat sheet on code of conduct for board members. Basically, I really only bring it out, frankly, when I'm handling a situation where there's a high level of dysfunction on the association's board. And it's a reminder to the board members that these are your responsibilities as a board member. And um, we try to get everybody on the board to sign it. So it appears that that may be what's happened here with your association. So what do you do when somebody violates it? You know, what I would recommend is that at the next board meeting or even when it occurs to give a gentle reminder that this behavior is not consistent with our code of conduct. 
if the behavior continues or this is an ongoing issue with the board member, what you may want to consider doing is having your attorney send a letter to the board member, that's the alleged offending board member, outlining the violation of the code of conduct and reminding them that they may be breaching their fiduciary duty to the association. If it continues, it may be something where we have to go the route of, you know, board removal petition. And so if you're in this situation, you should be getting your legal counsel involved to help you navigate this problem because it appears that, you know, you've got some bad behavior by a board member and it's creating a dysfunction on your association. Okay, next question, number seven. I have submitted an architectural request in April. And this is from a homeowner. At the April meeting, it was tabled. It has not been addressed, nor have I received anything in writing from the board. What are my options? So I'm assuming this is April uh, 2022, and that's a very long wait um, to not have your application be ruled on. So the first thing I would say as a homeowner, check your association's documents. In the CCNR, sometimes it says that an architectural application, if it's not approved within a certain time period, um, or denied within a certain time period that it is considered approved. So you may want to check to see if in your association you have that language in your CCNRs. If not, and if that's the case, you should write a letter to the board saying that you, it's your position that it's been approved. If you don't have that language in your documents and, and you know, many don't, then I would go back to the board and ask to be placed on the agenda for the September board meeting and ask them to make a decision. I would you know, also reach out to the board prior to that and ask them, why was this tabled and what action have you taken to move this forward? Do you have questions? Do you need additional information, et cetera? Okay, next question, um, number eight. This is from a management company representative. Um, Arizona law for planned communities details the hierarchy of payment applications. And if I'm understanding Arizona law correctly, the order of payment application should first be applied to outstanding assessments and then next to late fees and third to legal fees. Is that correct? Do the condominium statute state this as well? Which governing documents does this payment hierarchy need to be added to? So the Planned Communities Condo Act are identical in how the payment of applications or application of payment of assessments and other charges are done. So for Planned Communities, it's going to be 331807J. And for Condominium Acts, it's going to be 331256J. And so basically what it says is regardless of what your association's documents you know, state, regardless of what any contract may state between the management company and the association, under Arizona law, unless the member directs otherwise, all payments received on a member's account have to be applied first to any unpaid assessments, unpaid charges for late payments of those assessments, unpaid reasonable collection fees, and unpaid attorney's fees and costs incurred with respect to those assessments in that order, and then with any remaining amounts applied next to other unpaid fees, charges, monetary penalties, interests, or late charges of those amounts. And so think about this, as you're applying payments, um, you know, how our office does it when we have a delinquent file and we're helping the board apply payments, is we apply it first to the, the principal amount that's owed and then to interest. So if a member, doesn't place a restrictive endorsement on the check or doesn't enclose a letter with a restrictive endorsement, 
um, as to how the, the money should be applied or whatever. Um, we're applying it first to unpaid assessments and then late fees and then, you know, any collection fees and attorney's fees that have been incurred. And so I hope that's helpful to you. Okay, next question is from an office manager at a large master plan community. Um, we would like to go paperless. And if we do that, how long must we keep paper copies of board meetings? Um, and so we have some great cheat sheets that I think would be helpful for you as you navigate this process. We have one on how long do we keep association records? And then another one on technology and community associations that my office is sharing with you now. Um, a couple of thoughts. First of all, if you're going paperless, you have an electronic copy of everything. And so once the electronic copy you know, has been made and it's in the cloud and it's safe and it's you know being backed up, if you have electronic copy of all your prior board meetings, there's really not a need to keep the paper copies anymore from that point forward. Okay, let's go to question number 10. Um, this is from a board member. Is a simple majority of board members all that is required to change, add, or remove the requirements of the HOA's uh, design guidelines? So really good question. So the bottom line is you have to check what your documents say. Like do your most documents are going to say that the board can make design review guidelines? In rare instances, you may need to have a vote of the membership. That would be very rare. So check your documents, but typically it's going to be a simple majority to add, change, or remove requirements to the HRA design review guidelines. Kind of a sticky wicket would be, well, what if the documents don't even, our documents or CCNRs don't even mention having guidelines? Well, then you may really want to consider amending your documents to give you the authority or just recognizing that, hey, these are guidelines and these are just meant to help our homeowners um, as they navigate the process of making architectural changes and just have the board approve them. Okay, next question, number 11 from a board member. What if the new board is not sure if a bi-monthly maintenance vendor is licensed? The vendor has been with the HOA for years and the new board inherited this person. They're really great and fair with pricing and we want to keep them but are not sure if the former board kept on top of vendors. Additionally, there is no contract for service month to month or the options if they aren't licensed. Um, so we have two great resources for you on this topic. One is we have a cheat sheet on bidding and contracting, and this would be maybe for larger projects and wouldn't necessarily apply to like a, you know, your monthly maintenance person who might be cleaning bathrooms or changing light bulbs. We also have a blog on hiring licensed contractors, and that's one you should definitely take a, a close look at, and we're sharing that with you too. Um, so I guess the big question is, how do we know if this person is licensed and bonded? How do we even know if they have to be licensed and bonded? So with, you know, it says it's a maintenance vendor and they're bi-monthly. So I would reach out to them and find out, are you licensed, bonded, and insured? And can you provide evidence to us? That would be the first line of defense. And if, if it's a type of license that you need to have, like a, a contractor's license in Arizona, you can also check with the Arizona Register of Contractors website to see if they are listed and if they have a bond and, you know, they have any complaints against them, et cetera. I'm guessing what you're going to find out here is that the contractor that you're using is not licensed, bonded, or insured. And, you know, just as legal counsel that represents associations throughout the state of Arizona, I can tell you that 
that's a very dangerous position that you're in because if this maintenance vendor is not licensed, bonded, or insured, and you have hired this person to work on the property, a couple things can happen. Number one, if the person gets injured, they may try to make a worker's compensation claim and claim, hey, we were an employee of the association because you know, we weren't licensed, bonded, insured, and try to, that could be very expensive for the association. I have had that happen to a few clients where they hired an unlicensed um, roofer. They got a good deal. They liked the person, right? Fair with the pricing and, you know, they were doing a good job, but this person fell off the roof. And then what ended up happening is there were a lot of medical bills and the person that was injured started to face the reality that they may not be able to work again ever. And at that point there, you know, it shifted to, Hey, I wasn't licensed, bonded or insured. And, you know, under the state of Arizona, they consider that me to be an employee of the association and made it plain for workers' compensation. The association didn't have any employees, so they didn't have a workers' comp policy. So they just basically had to pay out of pocket. Um, so it was very, very expensive mistake. So be mindful of that. Um, what type of things is this person doing on your property? Are they up on a ladder, changing light bulbs, you know, on a double ladder? This person needs to be licensed, bonded, and insured. So you have to weigh the risk, what type of work they're doing, the risk that they could get injured with, you know, the financial risk is if they do get injured, can you afford to pay out? Um, And so these are all really important questions. Bottom line is, as a lawyer in our industry, my feeling on this is you should be hiring licensed, bonded, and insured contractors. And that's the best protection for any association. Okay, next question, number 12. Um, from a board member. Recently, we had a homeowner whose car was scratched by a falling tree. The tree was on the HOA's property. The homeowner requested that the HOA pay to fix his vehicle. The board declined this request. Is it the HOA's responsibility to pay for repairs to the homeowner's property if the property is damaged by trees or plants that are on the community's property? So this is a tough question because I don't know if the falling tree fell as part of a storm or if it fell because it wasn't being maintained. I do kind of worry a little bit about this because if the tree was on the common areas and the tree fell and it scratched, fortunately, that's the least amount of damage. I don't know if the association was at fault for not maintaining the tree or what exactly happened here. And a scratch is kind of inexpensive to fix. So I, you know, I'm kind of wondering why get into it with this owner when it's it's such an easy fix. But I think it's, I would need more facts on this, but, you know, a tree that falls from the common area and and damages another's property, even though it's a small damage, just a scratch. I'd want to look more at why did the tree fall? If it, you know, truly was like an act of God during a storm or something, that might be a different analysis. If the tree wasn't being maintained, there might be some liability for the association. So I want to mention that. Okay, next question, number 13. Um, The owner of a unit died last summer and the family moved into the vacant lot. The HOA cannot get cooperation from the family concerning legal ownership of said unit. There is a will, but the estate has not gone through the probate. The management company cannot find a death certificate. 
No family was on the deed, nor is there a deed of trust recorded. Only a quick claim deed for the ex-wife. Currently, the occupants, occupants cannot vote in board elections or use the amenities because they are not owners or tenants. What are the legal ramifications and what are the next steps to take? Okay, um, a couple of thoughts here. I mean, number one, are they paying assessments? That would be something I'd be really interested in because if they aren't paying assessments and we've had a year pass, which it looks like last summer, I don't know if you mean 2021 or 22, um, or you know, there's over $1,200 owed in assessments only, you may wanna exercise your right to foreclose because that's going to call into, you know, call a question. Basically, it's going to make people do something. I think probably what I would do in this case is I would reach out to our firm. We can, well, because we have such a high volume of associations that hire us to collect delinquent assessments um, from their owners, we have all kinds of different companies that we subscribe to to find out information about um, residents and owners' credit and also allows us to obtain information such as death certificates, whether somebody's in probate, what exactly happened, and if we're good detectives like that. So I think probably what you need to do is if the owners aren't cooperating with you, we need to find out more information. It's possible if you haven't found a death certificate that this person may be like in an assisted living facility with Alzheimer's or something. And if we can't find anything, then we need to send a letter to um, the property asking for more information from a lawyer letter, um, basically. But I don't have all the facts on this one, so I don't know if they're paying assessments, but you definitely need to escalate this to your attorney at this point. Okay, next question, number 14. Our bylaws require 10% penalty on late assessments. May that fee be compounded month by month, 10% on the entire unpaid assessment, including interest. Nothing in our bylaws mentions compounding the late fee, but it doesn't say we can't. So short answer would be do not do that. Um, I can see from the name of your association that you are a condominium. And so what the Condominium Act says about late fees is that basically an association can just charge, charge late fees. Um, but your association documents say, you know, a 10% penalty. Now, I don't have the exact language here. I don't know, um, you know, if you can give me the exact language in your bylaws. I don't know what it says. But, um, you know, I think a safe thing to do would be to follow what the Planned Communities Act says. And it's consistent here with this 10% penalty language that you have in your documents. Um, so what I would suggest is that you charge either $15 each month that it's late or 10% of the assessment, whichever, you know, is going to be greater. Obviously, if the $15, you know, is more than 10%, you go by what your bylaws say. Um, I would not compound the insurance and the interest. I think that is a very bad idea. I would basically just do the 10% on the monthly charge that's not paid within 15 days of the due date. Okay, question 15 um, from a condo owner. Are there any laws that prohibit the association from notifying a potential buyer who calls with questions regarding the association rules and regulations from disclosing a significant roofing issue on the common elements? So bottom line is, is that the association really shouldn't be communicating with buyers about anything pertaining to the association. 
Um, they are not owners. Um, the only time that we would communicate with a buyer is when a disclosure statement is requested from a title company asking the association for more money, or excuse me, for more um, information regarding the association. And um, in those circumstances, there's a whole laundry list of questions outlined by state law that we you know, provide. We have a great cheat sheet that talks about this topic on disclosure fees that you can find on our website. It's called Transfer Fees Versus Disclosure Fees and our website on the cheat sheet tab at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, so are there laws that prohibit us? So don't let us notify a buyer who calls with questions. Not that I'm aware of, but it's not best practices because what you don't want to have the association do is get into a situation where the seller of a property says to the association, you screwed up my deal to sell my house because of the information that you provided to the buyer. Maybe they said something like, oh yeah, the roofs do need to be redone in two years. And there may be a special assessment and maybe the buyer doesn't want that. Um, so it gets really sticky with these buyers who are very active in asking for more information. What I would do as an association is direct the buyer back to the owner or to their realtor and tell the buyer that these are the type of questions need to be directed to the seller owner or the realtor, you know, to get to the seller's realtor. Um, we do have some requirements as to what we have to disclose to buyers through the disclosure statement. Having a significant roofing issue is probably not something that's being disclosed unless there's like a special assessment for it that's already been passed and we're collecting it, or unless there's litigation pertaining to that issue, we would have to disclose litigation and what it was about. Okay, next question, number 16. Um, this is from a board member. A majority of the board, four to one, has voted not to obtain the membership's approval to renew earthquake insurance, even though three of the four board members have said the coverage is unreasonable. How can the membership request for a vote to renew or not renew the earthquake insurance? Okay, so... Let's see. Majority of the board has voted not to obtain the membership's approval. Okay, so that's typically not something you would go to the membership for. Typically, insurance decisions are made by the board. So if the membership wants something different, they want the earthquake insurance, then I would recommend that you go to a board meeting and that you present your case. Why do we need it? Is there some special information that makes you think we need it? It looks like you may be a planned community. You may want to ask to have the association's insurance agent come to a board meeting. The board would have to ask the agent to do that to explain the pros and cons of risk insurance and whether it's necessary or something that's customary in Arizona to have. Um, but ultimately, the board makes a decision on this. And if the homeowners are upset about it, you can run for the board. You can come to the board meeting and, and state your case um, during the homeowner forum. You can remove the board if it's that big of an issue. If you follow the procedure to remove the board under Arizona law, you can try to rally the troops and get more people upset about it and have them come to the board meeting to show power in the numbers. Um, these are really all the different things that you can do, but you can't make them vote on this. If the board chooses not to do it, that's their choice. Question 17 from a board member. Is there any scenario where a board can decide to modify 
such as reduce or increase the term of elected members. I can't find anything in our statutes that would allow such action. A couple of things, thoughts on this. So typically the, the association's bylaws outline how long the terms of directors are. And so you want to look to the bylaws to see, do you have a one-year term, two-year term, three-year term? That's usually the highest that we see. Um, now, sometimes boards play this little game where let's say that somebody resigns from the board and their seat on the board has two years left on the term. Sometimes there's a little game that happens where somebody, maybe a board member that only has one year left on their term, they get moved into that other board member's seat that has a longer term that just resigned from being on the board. And so what happens is, you know, board member B that only has a one member term left resigns from the board and then board member B gets appointed to the seat that had two years left on it. You know, that's legal. It kind of always raises a little red flag to me when I hear boards doing that because it's, you know, like, why, why it just seems like, why are you so insecure that you won't be reelected? It just seems odd. But I mean, there's also an argument to me that I think you have a lot of experience and you may want to stay on the board longer so that you can continue projects or whatever. You don't want to have somebody come in who may not have the same level of commitment that you do and experience to be into that two-year seat. So there's pros and cons on it. That's the only time I can see that you would be able to do that. But again, you'd have to have the proper paperwork to support that. Okay, question from a board member. Can we create an asset preservation fee? Um, I'm thinking, guessing, kind of guessing what you're thinking on this is like a capital contribution fee where the money goes into like asset preservation, like you said, or a reserve fund. Um, Yes, you can. We have a cheat sheet on this topic called transfer fees and um, disclosure fees, which I kind of referenced a few minutes ago. You do have to have that fee, the ability to charge that fee in your CCNRs in order for it to be valid. Um, and there's a whole state law on how you have to set it up. So I encourage you to check out our cheat sheet on that topic. Okay, next question um, is from a manager and it is question number 19. SRP cut down a very large tree on our property with no warning or no notice given. The reason they gave was that it was in the way of a utility pole on the other side of the wall. Do we have any recourse? Had we been given any sort of notice, we would have had the tree trimmed back. Instead, we are now without a very large shade tree. Um, This is an unusual situation. I mean, it's uncustomary in my experience that SRP would just come on the property and, and trim something or remove the tree. But if it was like a hazard or something, I can see that being something that they might do. Um, And so what I would do is reach out to them and find out more information on more than it was in the way of the utility pole and find out if they gave us any notice that they were planning to do this. And I would also request a replacement tree for somewhere adjacent to that that's not going to interfere with their utility pole. See if they're willing to do that. I think what you might find is that there's probably a paper trail that they've been trying to reach out to you on this. And um, this was a last resort by now. Okay, next question from one of my favorite people, a prior board member. Um, Members have supposedly been sent violation notices for continuing to violate the CCNRs. 
But as a community member, I can't see those. So I don't know if and when notices have been sent. I'm not looking for personal information like email addresses, social security information. The manager is just refusing outright to release this information and other association information, such as board packets for open board meetings. And I don't understand why. Okay, so we have to look at what the statute says about what documents you're entitled to see as a member in the community. So something to think about would be, I'm not opposed to providing to owners like a, a list of violations. When I mean, every typically what happens for management companies is they have a list of all the violations that they provide to the board at the board meeting. And I don't understand why that couldn't be provided to you as an owner. You know, obviously you're a former board member, so you probably know what that packet contains. The type of things that you're not entitled to would be, let's say that there's pending litigation on a lot. Um, you wouldn't be entitled to anything on that. Let's say that you are um, trying to ask for emails or cell phone numbers um, or social security numbers. Like you said, you can't have that. But I mean, I think everything in the board packet, except for things that, you know, like maybe legal advice from your attorney, maybe the delinquency report because you're pursuing these owners legally, those type of things you can't have. But really, pretty much everything else should be fair game. So um, I'm not sure why they're trying to play hide the ball on that. That doesn't make sense. When boards try to hide things or management companies try to hide things that homeowners are, should be allowed to see, it's a sense that either they're insecure about their jobs or they want to play hide the ball because they don't want you to have the information like maybe it hasn't been done. So I delve further on that. If they continue to, to refuse to provide it to you, you may want to consider going to the ADRE, Arizona Department of Real Estate, making a complaint there. For a hearing, you're going to have to pay the $500 filing fee, which if you win, you get that back. You may want to think about hiring a lawyer to send a letter on your behalf. Um, continue to document that you're requesting for it and they're refusing to give it to you because that'll be important if you take any legal steps down the road. Okay, next question, number 21. I'm just seeing a little check here to see how many total questions we have now. We're at 45, so we're at just a little bit like the halfway point. Okay, so next question from a board member. If the HOA's CCNRs do not have any language regarding rentals, with the new statutes, is it possible to put an amendment in the CCNRs that would state no rentals for less than three months? So this is a really a loaded question. Is it possible? I mean, I'd have to look at your documents, but so basically, and there's a lot of factors that come into play. There's a new case that was just decided by the Supreme Court of Arizona that is makes it a little harder for associations to implement amendments to their CCNRs, but so the first question I would want to know is, are you uh, HOA or are you a planned community or are you HOA or are you a condo? So planned community or condo are, um, it looks like you may be a planned community because I think I recognize the name of your association. Is it something that's possible? Yes. We'll have to look at your documents carefully. And of course, you're going to have to get a board membership. And we'll have to factor in the new case and see if there's anything in the language of your CCNRs that make it more difficult to do this. But we're, we have continued to do uh, rental restrictions to put in minimum rental periods, despite the new case that came down. 
Um, there just has to be extra thought that's placed into it and careful analysis of the language in the CCNR. So is it still possible? Short answer, yes, but you need further evaluation. So reach out to our firm to help you with that process. Next question from a board member, number 22. How do we communicate with renters on alerts and activities shared with general community managers when the owner fails to give out rules and regulations and other information on contacting the property management company? Well, first line of defense is you can explain to the owner how important it is to provide that information to us if if they so choose, because we can't force them to do it, because it just gets the information out to their whoever's residing in the property, especially if there's like a street closure, you know, there's a problem, serious problem. Um, if they refuse, then you can always knock on the door and ask the renter if they'd be willing to get the information out so that you can add them to the list. Okay, next question, number 23. I had a handicapped parking spot by my door. The management company removed it and states they do not think my handicap is obvious, so they are requesting updated documentation from a physician. My handicap is permanent. Can they do this? This is problematic. I think there are some very serious fair housing issues um, that are raised by this question. And so what I would do is I would provide the updated documentation to the board for sure from a medical doctor. And I would try to get that handicap parking spec back. I don't know why they moved it. Um, it just seems the entire thing seems, you know, needs further evaluation by the board. But of course, if you are, if they don't do anything after you talk with them, you can always consider making a fair housing complaint with the attorney general's office in Arizona and all of that can be done online. Okay, next question, 24 from a board member. Are there any legal concerns for association members, board members working on developments that will impact the quality of life for the HOA but are not specifically covered by the HOA charter? Like can the board member represent the HOA for a city zoning change consideration and work to minimize potential impacts for quality of life? This is a really good question. So when you serve on your board, do you have to be thinking about other issues that are outside the walls of our community? Like um, I've seen other associations and it usually is allowable just so you know, because um, there's general language in most CCNRs that says that the board has to act in the best interest of the community and their fiduciary responsibility is to make sure that the common areas are maintained and indirectly property values are maintained. So let's say that there's a zoning change for a property that's adjacent to you and they're going to turn it into a trash dump. I mean, of course, that is going to negatively impact your association. And the board member, you know, could go to a zoning hearing and say on behalf of the board, as long as the board supports this person, is opposed to this. If it's a real serious zoning issue, then we really need to bring in a zoning attorney to give you advice and have them help you through that process. Next question, number 25, from a manager. We have a lot of managers today, which is awesome. Thanks for being here. The new law for short-term rentals gives the cities and towns leeway to place restrictions on rentals. How long do the cities and towns have to put these guidelines in place or how long do we expect it to take? So great question. You know, short-term rentals, very hot topic in the legislature this year. 
starting September 24th, um, owners are going to have to have permits for short-term rentals. They're going to have to give their emergency contact information. And the cities and towns and municipalities have to have the infrastructure in place to implement this new law. Um, What I would recommend, I don't know what cities you're talking about, but what I would recommend is... I think the cities, towns, and municipalities and counties are working on this based upon the context that I have around the valley. I don't know if the things that they have put in place have been codified because really, let's think about this. The legislature closed in June and really they've only had July, a couple of city council meetings and August to city council meetings. So I don't know if if it's actually been implemented yet by the cities, but your manager for the cities that you work with, that's a great question. Reach out to them, look at their website, see what they're doing to comply with the new law. Next question from a board member, what can be done to protect the HOA brick wall that surrounds our community when it continues to be vandalized daily by others climbing over the brick wall, pushing down bricks, breaking bricks, the wall is almost level to walk through path to walk through a different path. Okay, first of all, you should post signs, signage. You may want to install cameras so you can see who is um, doing this. You may want to put what I would call a deterrent on the side that they're climbing on. Like a lot of people do Bugavia is a deterrent because of prickly, you know, edges. You may want to hire, you know, an off-duty or security officer or an off-duty police officer to for a couple of weeks to man the area so that they can remind people don't go this way. Um, you know, these are all different suggestions on how you can stop the vandalization. If there's graffiti, get that graffiti down as fast as possible. Um, your city, town, or municipality may have a graffiti team that will come out and help you do that. You have to make it inconvenient for them to climb over this wall. And that may be installing vegetation, et cetera, that makes it impossible for them to do that. Question 27, could you please restate the purpose of having an HOA reserve fund and what is considered an acceptable range of reserves to maintain percentage-wise? Okay, so the HOA reserve fund is the long-term savings account, so to speak, for capital improvements in your association. And so all of your amenities in the association have a useful life. And like the pool is going to need to be replastered, let's say every six years and the roads need to be resealed every four years or whatever. And so what you do is you hire a reserve company that's qualified and that is accredited to come to your property and to evaluate all of your amenities. And they come up with what we call a reserve study, which is a plan to fund the reserves. Um, So the purpose of having the reserve fund is to plan for the future so that you don't have a bunch of special assessments. The planning is in, you know, you use the reserve study to tell you how much money to put aside every year. So you have the money in your account and you don't have to go and do a large special assessment of the owners, which people get upset about. So that's, you know, the purpose of that. What's an acceptable range of reserves? You have to have a reserve study to determine how much money you should have. If you've had a reserve study done, I think kind of the rule of thumb is that if it's you know somewhere between 75 and 85, 100% reserved, you're in good shape. 
anything if you're only 30% reserved, 30% of the number that the reserve company tells you to, you're in kind of in a danger zone. Um, so you really need to take a closer look at, at finding ways to fund that reserve going forward. Okay, question number 28. We have significant damage to an elevator panel, and this is from a board member, due to a renter's unauthorized move and jamming furniture into the elevator. We've got cameras and we've got witnesses on this. We expect pushback from the owner, even though our CCNRs state that the owner is responsible for damages caused by the renter. When he sent the invoice for replacement, we don't think he's going to pay it. What are our legal options to recoup the costs? So I significant damage to the elevators. I know that can be very expensive. So what I would recommend is send a, a letter from the association first. If the owner doesn't pay or doesn't respond, escalate this to your attorney. Have the attorney send a letter. If they continue to not respond or pay, they have to go to small claims court or superior court to get a judgment against the owner because the owner is responsible for the behavior of the tenant. Okay, next question, number 29. We have one home in our community that has large and very old underground propane tank. It's 36 years old. Our board would like to see a recent inspection report of the tank, and the homeowner is reluctant to provide it. The home is not using propane at the present time, and we believe the tank is 40% full. I've talked to many resources, such as the City of Scottsdale and our Master Association, with no results or direction. I have not talked to the fire marshal. What should I do? Gosh, this is a tough one. Um, I think what I would do is, you know, I don't really know enough about how large this propane tank is and what's it used for. Is it, you know, used for heating the pool previously or is it, you don't have gas in your neighborhood? So, um, and is this a hazard? I think probably the fire marshal would be a good place to start. Um, I would also ask questions. I would go back to the city of Scottsdale and find out what sort of recourse you have on this situation. You may want to call the state of Arizona too and find out if there's any sort of an inspection. Who does the inspection on this? I don't know. But you need to keep pressing on this. And then once you find that information, then you know either make a complaint that um, you're concerned about the safety on this and ask these uh, state agencies or city agencies to investigate further. Bottom line is, unless our CCNRs give us some you know, right to enforce this or to inspect this, there's probably not a lot we can do. I recognize that you might be concerned from a safety standpoint that there could be a leak or you know, it could explode or whatever. So just document everything that you're doing. Question number 30. For several years, our management company and board did not do their job. Homeowners made architectural changes that were against the guidelines, and we are just discovering these changes. It started to look like there is no HOA. We've hired a new management company and now have a committed board that I'm a member of. Can we make a homeowner remove things like pavers, concrete plants, concrete plants, etc., from their yard? I think you really have to look at how long these items have existed to determine whether or not you can enforce it. If something kind of a, a rule of thumb is, if you've had a violation on a property for more than three years, we've probably waived our right to enforce it. Um, and, and some of these you may not know, like how long have these existed. You can look at the aerial maps from Maricopa County. You go to the assessor's office and go back years. 
um, to see if, how long it's been there, et cetera. Um, but it's really going to have to be a case-by-case basis. What I would recommend is going forward, make sure that you are enforcing things uniformly and strictly as you, you know, I can tell you intend to do. On the ones going backward, you're going to have to look at how long this violation existed and is this something that the owner is going to be willing to change? It probably won't be. So you might just need to draw a line in the sand and say from this point forward, we're going to be really strict and go back to following our CCNRs. Okay, next question from another manager. Is it legal for associations to charge $400 disclosure fee plus $100 transfer fee plus $100 property inspection fee? Okay, hard to say because I don't know what your documents say. Under Arizona law, a board can charge a maximum of $400 for the disclosure fee. Um, And this applies to condominiums and plan communities. So when the new law went into effect, if you weren't charging, were not charging $400, you could increase it each year and then max up, max out to the $400. So I don't know the history on each association that you may be referencing, but I can tell you that, you know, the maximum you can charge under Arizona law is $400. The transfer fee, same thing. Um, you know, you have to look at our cheat sheet on transfer fees. It really needs to be in the CCNRs for it to be enforceable. You may be able to argue a de minimis transfer fee under the Nonprofit Corporation Act for the cost to transfer the paperwork from one owner to another. But best practices would be to follow, you know, the transfer fee statute that's um, very specific. It says you have to have the language in the CCNRs and more information on that can be found on our cheat sheet on our website. And then $100 property inspection fee. I'd have to look at your CCNRs. That would have to be something in your CCNRs that you're allowed to charge in order for that to be enforceable. Okay, question number 32 is from a board member. We have a couple of owners in our community that have requested that we provide them with a roster that includes all contact information, such as name, address, phone number, and email for our owners. As a board, we don't feel comfortable giving out that private information, so we asked owners to let us know if they wanted to be included in a roster that we would make available to owners. We have some owners that are adamant that all members of the corporation are entitled to this information. Is this true? Is there a statute that I could point this person to? Okay, so the bottom line here is that we are required as an association to keep the name and the address of all owners on file. And that's actually pretty easy because obviously the nature of our association is property and we have an address for everybody's property. So that particular section's in the Nonprofit Corporation Act. I don't have that right at my fingertips right now. But there's a really distinction between giving... And then basically, they call it like an owner's roster with the name and address. We're required to maintain one for each member of our association and, you know, a whole list of the name and address, physical address for each owner. But giving out phone number and email for your owners, that's not something we're required to do. And I do think that's personal information that would be defined as something that we wouldn't give under the books and records statute um, of the kind of made act and the Planning Communities Act. And so what I would say is to this homeowner is, hey, we did the right thing. I talked to an attorney and, you know, I'm giving you this information that we asked people to give us, you know, their 
information if they wanted to be included in the roster that would be distributed to everybody in the community. If people opted out, so be it. We can't get their information. If they opted in, great, here's the list. And so, you know, what you could do is provide an owner's roster with everybody's name and address, physical address at the association. And then for anybody who opted in, give their opted in information and add that on there. We are having our balconies redone. The contractors have taken five months and are still not finished. What recourse, if any, do we have if they do not complete the work by the agreed upon timeline? Okay, um, you're in a really good window here to make sure that this work gets done. So ask for a meeting with the company, ask for a meeting with a higher up in the company that you've hired to do this work. Find out what's going on. Um, my concern here is, you know, if you rush them, they may do substandard work and then balconies whew, are very expensive to repair if they're not done right. So find out what's happening. Maybe you need to sever the relationship. I don't know. You may, maybe you need to talk with your attorney after you find out more information from the contractor. Maybe they lost their crew. Maybe people, you know, have COVID. I don't know what's going on on it. I'm sure, um, you know, you're going to find out the information when you meet with the president of the company or the supervisor. If they're just kind of giving you the runaround, they won't even meet with you, then you have to really consider like, hey, do we want to go to the register of contractors? Hopefully they're licensed and bonded and make a complaint and get the register of contractors to force a meeting um, where all parties come out and they look at the quality of the work, et cetera. So what recourse do you have? You can go to the register of contractors. You can ask for a meeting. You can get your attorney involved and send them a letter. You can file a lawsuit. If the work that they've done is substandard, if you prepaid them, you know, and they haven't given you enough work for the prepayment, probably this is not going to go away. And I think you probably need to dial in, you know, your legal counsel to help you with this um, to make sure that this is seen through correctly and that you get those balconies done. Next question, number 34 from a board member. If a board member has a concern about the current property manager, can one or more of the board members force a private executive session and ask the property manager and the note taker provided by the management company to be excused? Um, so, yes, this is something that can be discussed in executive session under the law. So um, job performance of a contractor is, is falls right under that category. I think what you want to do is um, you want to be sensitive to the management relationship. So what I would recommend is that you be honest and you say we're going to be doing a job performance review of you. And um, that's why we're going into executive session. And of course, we'll give you an opportunity to respond to it after we've had an opportunity to talk. And the note taker, since they're provided apparently by the management company, we're going to ask that person to leave too. Um, I think that's probably the best way to handle it. Just put it right out there in the open and go from there. And if you're having a problem with the performance, you know, of the manager, also another thing you can do is go to the higher ups in the company and tell them, hey, we're not happy. We want a different manager or we need you to tell this manager they need to approve. Question 35, the association has a long standing upper level floor guidelines in place in order to reduce noise transmission to the lower unit. Question is, how much legal footing does the association have to request the removal of unapproved floors 
when the new owner has purchased the unit as is with unapproved flooring. So sounds like maybe you had an owner in the upper floors who installed new flooring, didn't use the soundproofing that maybe the association required or maybe did it on the slide so we didn't know they were doing it. I mean, I guess how long has it been since the floor was, floor was changed? It's been more than three years. We may be out of luck under, you know, we've waived our right to enforce it. What I would do is I would open dialogue with the new owner and tell them that there have been complaints, that we don't think the flooring was approved, and find out what we can do to make this situation better. I would start there um, and see where you go. Okay, next question, number 36. How is voting done for committee chair selection? Is it majority voting or the entire board? And this is actually from a committee member. So you have to look at your bylaws. Sometimes the board president can create committees and appoints the chair. Sometimes the board president is, you know, there's nothing in the bylaws on this. So maybe the committee just meets at their first meeting and the majority decides who's going to be the committee chair. It just it really depends on what the bylaws state for your community. Next question from a board member and one of my very favorite board members who I've had known for ever since the first year I was practicing law. So great to see you here today. Um, during a recent storm, a large HOA tree fell on a member's wall. We got an estimate to repair the wall and it was reasonable. A board member is questioning why we are repairing the wall as they feel it was an act of God and the member's insurance should pay for the repair. As a board, are we doing the correct thing by paying for the repair? I mean, I guess the question is how much is the cost of the repair? These tree falling cases is the second question here today. These are tough cases. In most situations, the insurance company will not pay either the homeowner's insurance company and the association's insurance company won't pay for a tree falling and damaging a property. If the tree is on the common areas and it falls on a member's wall, which is their responsibility to maintain, I mean, there may be an argument that, hey, the tree wasn't being maintained or it wasn't trimmed enough and it was too heavy and that's why it fell during the storm. So this is a really gray area. I mean, I'm assuming maybe what I would have done first is offered to split the cost and if the owner refused and depending on the cost to do it, probably would have advised the association to pay for it because the cost to litigate this is going to be way more than the cost to repair the wall. So you want to be practical. So I would say, look at every, all the facts and, and circumstances here, how much is it going to cost? You know, was this the tree something, it was our fault that it fell. I don't think insurance is going to cover it. And I, I think you handled it the correct way. Question 38 from a board member. We have an amenity fee for our community pool for one of the two communities in our HOA. It is stated in the CCNRs as a parcel assessment. Is there a state statute that also requires all the residents in that parcel to pay the pool parcel assessment as an amenity fee? Is there a number for that statute? So really kind of, I, I don't know how this is set up, so I have to just kind of navigate my way through this question. But so you have an amenity fee for a community pool for one of the two communities in our association. So apparently there's two communities in your association. There's a community pool and it's a parcel assessment. So I'm kind of unclear if it's 
all residents in that park still pay for the pool parcel assessment. I don't know what the language is for your CCNR, so it's really hard for me to talk about this, but is there a state statute that says that all residents in the two communities must pay? I'm not, no, there's nothing that I'm aware of. What you need to do is you need to look at the language of the CCNRs and determine who's required to pay that parcel assessment under the contract, which is the CCNRs, and that's gonna be controlling here. Um, number 39 is from a board member. I am new to the treasurer position on my board. The manager wants me to go through her when I talk to our accounting department. And the previous treasurer contacted them directly. The manager is new to our community. I would like to work independently with banks, checking out different investment companies and charging some, changing some ways that things have been done in the past. Is this the norm? So ultimately, you're the client. You're on the board, and if you have the support of your board to, you know, do these things, you certainly have the legal right to do that. Now, the manager, for whatever reason, wants to be more involved, wants to be kept in the loop. Maybe try to work something out where, you know, you're communicating what you're doing with the entire board and the manager so that the manager's not feeling left out. If it's a control thing where the, the, the management company is trying to control you and, you know, that's a little different situation, then you might want to, you know, just wonder like, hey, is this a good fit for us? If they're trying to control everything we're doing or are they hiding something or are they insecure that they're going to be fired? I, mean, I don't know the dynamics here, but ultimately you're the board member, right? And if you have the support of the board, you are well within your rights to move forward while you're doing Question number 40 from the board member. We have a subcommittee that compiles RFPs and then we receive the replies. They vet them to ensure that they meet our requirements. And at that point, they recommend to the board which contractor we should support. The majority of the board just seems to rubber stamp it. Does that not violate our fiduciary duty to ensure we are acting in the best interests of the association by allowing them to make the recommendation? You know, I'm okay with this. Um, I know you're a board member. I know your association's name. It's the large master plan community. It, it just really depends. I mean, if you're a large association, your board's probably got their hands full with a lot of major issues. So is it okay for the board to, you know, farm out getting RFPs for certain things to committees? I think that's okay. I have no issue with that. Rubber stamping it, I mean, it, it may appear that way to you, but if the committees, the subcommittees have done their due diligence and they give you a report that's, you know, really well thought out and there's value to the report and, you know, they've done a great job in, in other vendors that they may have selected, et cetera, I don't think it's considered rubber stamping if you're making a decision after reviewing all the facts. Now, there's a flip side of this, like if the board's just, you know, like literally not even reading anything and they're saying, oh, they told us to go with them. Well, then that's probably not doing your due diligence. But I don't think you're violating any fiduciary duty or not acting in the best interest of the association by delegating some of these tasks and then looking carefully at what they provide to you to make sure they've done the due diligence and, you know, that you agree with their recommendations. Okay, question number 41. We're getting close to the end. Five more um, from a board member. We contacted your office and plan on updating our CCNRs. We want additional changes to those that were suggested. A committee is working together on changes. 
should the community vote on suggested changes prior to the update of the CCNRs? I was thinking this way we could make adjustments in advance to obtain the necessary votes to pass. So great question. Love how you're thinking. Okay, so you've already contacted our office and you want to plan, you know, how to change your CCNRs. We have an amazing cheat sheet on amending CCNRs, a five-step plan that you must take a look at. It's a must-read for any association in Arizona that's thinking about amending their documents. Over the past 25 years, we have done thousands of CCNR amendments. And this little formula that's in the cheat sheet is it's the bomb, okay? It's the thing that you need to look at to make sure that you um, are following all the necessary steps to make sure you get buy-in from your community and legal evaluation of what you're changing and then you get the result you want to have it pass. So step one, when you're looking to amend your CCNRs, you determine what you know the percentages to amend the documents. Step two, you come up with the changes. Step three is the one that you're talking about. And that's when we go to the community with the proposed language that we think we want them to vote on in the future. And we ask them, hey, what's your opinion on this? What do you think about this? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Give us your feedback. And so what you want to do here is right on. Um, step three is asking the members, what do you think about this before we send it out to them with a formal community vote? And that's step four is after you get the feedback from the owners and step two, and it can be through a comment card, it can be through sending it to them and asking for an email response as to what they think about it. After you get that response, being strategic in step um, four, determining like, hey, should we just throw that thing out because there's too many people that don't want it? Should we separate that off and vote on it separately? Or should is the document pretty clean the way it is right now? And we think we can just do an all or nothing vote people are gonna be okay with it. Um, so great question. You never wanna skip that step three, asking for feedback prior to sending it out for vote when getting the CCNR amendment. Okay, question number 42 from a board member. We have documentation from a new experienced board member that they are intentionally making board decisions without discussing matters with board members. They write toxic emails and are verbally abusive. We've tried addressing these matters in emails and in meetings with them to no avail. If these matters continue, what steps should we follow to remove this board member so that we protect the association and its members? Okay, so if you're thinking about a board removal petition for one of your fellow board members, right? One of the first things that I would do is talk about the issue with the board and do it in an open board meeting because it's not an executive session topic unless you're bringing in the attorney to help. So try to talk about the issue with the offending board member and see what's going on. If that doesn't work, then you may want to consider bringing in our firm. We do boot camps for boards. Usually it's when boards have some level of dysfunction and they need it. Um, and maybe we can get to the bottom of it and remind them that, hey, they have their fiduciary duty not to be acting the way that they're acting. You may want to consider having a code of conduct. They probably won't sign it. So that's something a roadblock on that. Um, like I said at the beginning of this presentation, we have a cheat sheet on code of conduct. You know, a majority of the board could pass that if you can't get it unanimous approval, and then it would apply to the entire board. You want to check out our cheat sheet on, um, it's called the top 10 things you need to know about Arizona community association law. 
Number six on the cheat sheet is removal of board directors. There's a whole procedure you have to follow. It's tedious. You're going to have to do a petition um, and get a requisite percentage of members to sign the petition calling for the removal. You're going to have to have a removal meeting, which is a meeting of the membership, 30 days after the petition names are verified. It's a process. So you want to check out that cheat sheet to determine what to do. Okay, next question. Um, it looks like we had one question added. So we've got four questions left for today. So we are on question number 43 from another one of my very favorite clients that I have known for over 20 years and a fellow Wisconsinite, go Packers. Um, following the open Arizona open meeting law, specific items are allowed to be discussed and acted upon during closed executive session. This is appropriate to solicit or discuss RFPs and hire vendors during a closed session. Mm, no, it's not. So hiring and firing of vendors is done in the open session. The only thing pertaining to vendors that you should be doing or can do in an executive session is talk about the job performance of a vendor and how much you're compensating the vendor. So I suppose a portion of an executive session could be used about, okay, how much are we going to pay this vendor? But then hiring and firing the vendor definitely must be done in the open session. Question 44, um, can a board override CCNRs via an architectural request? So I think what you're saying is if somebody submits something in an architectural request and they can't do it under the CCNRs, can the board approve the architectural request, even though what they're approving is in violation of the CCNRs. So best practices would be, no, don't do this. I guess, can they do it? Well, yes, because they have, they can make a decision, but they're going to get sued for violating the CCNRs potentially, and it's a bad idea. Okay, next question, uh, number 45, last two questions. Is there any movement to update CCNRs to change requirements to get 67% yes vote to amend the CCNRs? With increases in rentals, it's really difficult to get these rental owners to vote on anything. So great question from a board member. So there have been some bills introduced over the past few years that would make like a uniform amendment percentage that would trump your documents, but nothing's passed in the past few years that would do that. So now remember, if you're a condominium, um, the condominium act does say you have to have a minimum of 67%. If you're a planned community, it could be lower than that if your documents you know, call for a lower percentage. So what I would say is if you're looking to amend your CCNRs, you have to look at what the percentage says in the documents um, and then go from there. Okay, last question. We are a small planning community. Can we assign committee functions to the board? So kind of similar to the question we had a little earlier about can the architectural committee be comprised of all board members? Um, so yes, you can. Oftentimes in small communities, you just don't have the, the manpower, you know, or woman power, whatever, to find people to serve on these committees. And in those cases, then the board unfortunately or fortunately steps up and acts as the committee. Wow. We got through um, 46 questions in just under an hour and a half. So great job, everybody. Thank you for all the wonderful questions. Thank you for caring about your communities. And thank you for joining us today 
for our pre-Labor Day. I'm so happy to announce that we have over 70 attendees today on Zoom and 20 live viewers on Facebook. And some people may already be in holiday mode so that we had over 90 people here today is amazing. Great job. Um, before we conclude today's seminar, I just want to mention something. We talked a little bit today about amending CCNRs. A lot of you who are listening here today might be sitting on some CCNRs that haven't been amended for the past decade. And um, really kind of a rule of thumb is that about every 10 years, your association should have your association's documents updated to comply with Arizona law and to clean them up and make them easier to understand and read. We have our virtual condo academy, um, the one that we have every month. Um, and the next one is going to be Tuesday, September 20th at 11 a.m. And the topic for that session is going to be rental restrictions, hot topic. And we're also going to be talking about the new legislation, the five bills that are going to be going into effect on September 24th. Don't forget our next uh, First Friday, virtual First Friday event is going to be Friday, October 7th. Um, same time, 9 a.m. And so we hope you'll consider joining us then. So have a great Labor Day weekend, everybody. I hope you are safe and have some uh, fun times with family and friends. And we hope to see you later this month at our upcoming classes. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Happy Labor Day. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 